0: The first reading is from Luke 7, uh, verse 11 to 28. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the beer they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them. Uh, He sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare the way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. The second reading comes from Colossians 1. Uh, Verses 15 to 23. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Keep that passage open and uh, I'll explore parts of it. And uh, I hope in a way that makes some sense to you and uh, some ve- benefit to you. Let me pray. Father, show us Jesus. Give us Jesus. Transform us in Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a famous and challenging and insightful quote from C.S. Lewis It goes like this. Christianity of false is of no importance. And if true of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important, to which one might reply, why can't it be? Why can't it be moderately important? I mean, for many people, Christianity is exactly that, moderately important. It might be moderately important for you. Example, It, you know, it's the sense of, it helps you get through your day, or gives you a sense that maybe things will work out well, or it's a pretty good basis for Western thinking and society. But this is to misunderstand Christianity. It's to misunderstand the Christian gospel. And the claim at the center of Christianity, this is to misunderstand the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things, our series for Advent. The following claim was made within the life, within days of the life of Jesus. Peter said, uh, very soon after the resurrection of Jesus, he says in Acts two, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made this Jesus, who was dead not so long ago, now both Lord and Messiah. So within days of the life of Jesus, he was being declared the greatest of all time, was, is, always will be. This is why Christianity cannot be moderately important. Here's another one. Paul says in Philippians two, next week's text that, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. you hear in the supremacy and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is why Christianity cannot be moderately important. The Christian gospel, the first one and the only one is simple that this one is the King of Kings. We learned that last week. Lord over lords, there's none above him, none after him. This is why Christianity cannot be moderately important. We're in week two of our Advent series on the supremacy of Christ, and today he is the image of the invisible God. GOAT, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, is a modern way of talking about a superlative personal thing. Greatest cricketer of all time, Bradman, the greatest game computer game of all time, GoldenEye. Those two are relatively uh, uncontested. Of course, most claims to be the greatest of all time are subjective and contested. But the claim that Jesus is the greatest of all time doesn't come because humans argue that he's better than other people, but it comes, or the claim is that it comes because it's the declaration of God himself. It comes because Jesus is the second person of the holy trinity he is god he existed as the eternal son from before the beginning of creation during advent we're going to look at the purple passages the glorious passages on the supremacy of christ of which this is one of them paul writes for in christ all things were created and you're like i know the order there's the beginning of the world it's creation then there's like however many years until the birth of jesus christ So how can you say all things were created in him all things were created things in heaven and earth visible invisible thrones powers rulers authorities all things have been created through him and for him something that john says at the beginning the prologue of his gospel he is before all things and in him all things hold together in other words if christ were to cease to to exist that were possible then all things would fall apart now what do you do with that and that's within a couple that's written within a couple of decades of the life of jesus john writes similarly when he says no one has ever seen god but the one and only son who is himself god and is in the closest relationship with the father has made god known this is greatest of all time language It's called the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. In doctrine, it's called high Christology, we're lifting up his name, not downplaying him, which is easy to do. Of course, it begs the question for anyone who wants to follow Jesus, what kind of Lord is this? There's toxic power, is this toxic power? There are toxic lords and kings, bosses, is this a toxic lord or king or boss? This will be our topic next week during the community carols It won't be here at 6pm. It'll be done at the Garrison Church at 4 o'clock next week. That's our text then, and I'll explore how from the being of God comes humility. So to our text today, in context, the Colossian Church was a little Christian community in a town in ancient Turkey. The city, the little town is now in ruins. But the little church then was a small boat on the high seas of the roman empire feeling its pressure much like church hill here in sydney we are small we are swamped by sydney that tower used to be the tallest tower in sydney until about 1900 now it's the littlest tower in sydney i don't mean buildings i mean we're small and in colossians the apostle paul charts how the gospel transforms lives how jesus transforms churches and how those churches eventually transformed the roman empire which was big and scary and ugly illustration this is the mv pashibolka it's seventy-seven thousand tons of japanese ship it's big and if it were headed your way on the open seas you would get out of the way. On June 8th, 2007, she was sitting just off Newcastle. A storm hit the coast. The ship was issued a warning to move further out to sea, which they ignored. They ignored the ocean, the storm, and despite fighting the currents, she ran aground, as many of you know or remember. She ran aground about half a mile from the centre of Newcastle. I was living in New York City at the time, but I used to live in Newcastle, so I rang my friends who visited the site and asked the obvious question, how can something so large get so solidly beached? What can lift and move and then stop in its tracks, 77,000 tonnes of steel? And the answer is quite simple and before your very eyes. What's bigger than the ship? Can you tell me? What's bigger than the ship? Hmm. The ocean. It's bigger than the ship. You just didn't notice it, because the ship was big. (laughs) But the ocean is much bigger, infinitely bigger. Well, actually, there's probably a number on it, but (laughs) but, you know, close to infinite, somewhere near that. And when that ocean, the thing ignored most days, is moved by the finger of God in the storm, then suddenly that which seems so large becomes a floating chess piece. Do not be fooled by size. The ancient Roman Empire was like the Paschabolka. Every empire is. It was so large, so overwhelming, so terrifying. You get out of its way, it felt like 77,000 tons of social pressure or weight bearing down on society and on Christians in particular. She, Rome is the one whom, to whom I owe my allegiance. Therefore, my cry must be Caesar is Lord. If it isn't, then I'm in danger. But the consistent message of the whole Bible is this, do not be fooled by size. Rome eventually ran aground on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Understood in light of its historic context, the Book of Colossians can open a door into the way in which we can live in Sydney today. Three points, him, verse 15, the cosmos, verses 16 to 20, and you, verses 21 to 24. That's the wrong way round in our current society, our sort of, I'm not the first to say self-selfie self, selfie society, as I understand it, with the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's me, therefore everything else follows. You won't hear that at church. Come to hear some tough love. Him first, then the cosmos, then you. First, him. He, verse 15, the sun, is the image of the invisible God. What do you discover? God is invisible, but he has an image available, and that image is the eternal son. It's Jesus. How are we supposed to process this? Well, here's something I found in preparation. If you are drawing from the Roman narrative of the world, Caesar is in the image of God, the son of God. That was the claim. And if you wanted to know God, you looked at and to the emperor. You Confessed his name, you bowed before him. Which in the time of Colossians, we're talking about Nero. I wonder, I posit, and you know, people have said this and it's yet to be proven, maybe. But I wonder if, uh, if we drew from a Sydney narrative of the world, self is in the image of God. If you want to know God, you look at and to the self. And, you know, for generations, we've been told to look inside. Back to the first century, images of the emperor were everywhere, just like corporate logos in the 20th, first century. Images of the emperor were in the market, the gymnasium, the gladiatorial games. They were on jewelry, goblets, lamps, paintings, and of course, coins. This is Nero. The sovereign rule of Caesar was simply assumed to be the divine plan for peace, Pax, the peace of Rome, Pax Romana. And, you know, such was the grand claim, the order of the cosmos. But 77,000 tons of social pressure does not determine truth. It never has. If I were to draw from a Hebrew narrative of the world from the Old Testament, I would know that Nero is not made in the image of God, but that all humans, are made in the image of god all humans female and male slave and free jew and gentile homeless and those with homes rich and poor ugly and beautiful child and adult fit young person old person in a nursing home in the image of god he made them but paul writes or begins his letter with these words, that the eternal son, verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the ultimate human, the final and complete Adam. The man and the woman were meant in the Garden of Eden to represent and embody God in the world, but, you know, look how humanity failed. I guess the point is, as a human race, we were not very good at being God's image, the image of the invisible God. And the simple test is this, If I asked you to consider and then describe what God was like using only humanity as a guide, and I'm talking the sum of humanity across time, race, nations, tribes, using only humanity as a mirror to understanding God, then what would you conclude about that God? You're deciding the character of God with only humanity in your petri dish. I submit that you would not. You would say not a whole lot that is good. The planet needs a savior. I need a savior. I need a savior. But Paul here says that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And if that's true, then what? Then would you say that God was like? I submit to you that you would say that God rules wisely, lovingly, graciously, sacrificially, insightfully. Jesus is the human that God wants humanity to become. Caesar is not in the image of God. Thank God. Jesus, rather, is at the image of the invisible God. So what if someone you ignore most days, a bit like the ocean, you know, it's in front of you. Well, if someone you ignore most days is more powerful than Rome. What if Jesus is the ocean and Rome the tanker? What if Jesus is the bigger thing than the big thing? The stronger man who ties up the stronger man. Let the readers of Mark, Mark's gospel, understand. I think if you read the news, we think Australia is the ocean, the big thing, the thing that that has power, and Jesus is currently beached on Aussie culture. What if Jesus is the ocean and Australia eventually buffeted by his lordship. Number one, him. Number two, the cosmos. Verses 16 to 20 are embedding the power of the sun over all things. Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things in the universe, the cosmos, have been created through him, the eternal sun, And for him, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, predate creation, all present, all there. This is the supremacy of Christ. Also uh, declared in verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Wow. Abraham Kuyper again from last week, but with more context. Oh, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermeneutically sealed off from the rest. There are no rooms left to self. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus owns it all. You begin to see why Christians talk about Jesus all the time. Sing about Jesus, pray to Jesus. It's because we take these words seriously. He owns me, he owns the world, the cosmos, he owns the nations, Australia, Russia, the Ukraine, North Korea. He owns my past, my present, my future. All things have been created through him and for him. And here's the kicker for modern Australia. He even owns my body, all things, my body. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, you are not your own. You were bought at the price and because that's true, honor God with your body, the context being sexual immorality. The church, too, belongs to him and not to popes, councils, bishops, pastors, rectors. Church doesn't belong to the narcissists or the abusers, verse 18. Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, greatest of all time. He's lord of creation, the cosmos, he's lord of me and the church. He made it, he owns it, and the inheritor of all of it. So the obvious implication is to bow down, to hop off the little throne you've cobbled for yourself, how's that going, and set apart Christ as lord to recognise and lift up his divine greatness. True story, I have a friend, an American friend, who was once giving an a presentation at a high-powered IT meeting in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. He was on the stage, ready to give the presentation, sitting amongst a group of people, and his computer froze up. It was locked up. Probably the same as us at two minutes past six, is my guess. But he was there with the pressure on, and the little whirly wheel of death is spinning, and he's got seconds to go, and the guy next to him says, hold on, buddy, the uh, The laptop he's got is a Dell computer. And uh, the guy next to him says, hold on, buddy, Um, give me a go. And the guy presses a few buttons on this computer in certain order and got it to work. My friends thanked him profusely and asked him his name. The answer, of course, is Michael Dell. True story. When you know the creator of that computer, you take note when you know the creator of human life you listen because the temptation in sydney is to listen to sydney to feel the pressure and to live out the australian story work hard pay rent get, maybe get a mortgage pay it off do good where you can but in the end i'll do what i want to do and look forward to the weekends but if you are a follower of jesus you do not do not live out of the australian story you live out of The story of the kingdom of the son he loves you've been transferred you've been given a whole new way to live what does christ do with his greatness what's god's intention in the supremacy of christ verse 19 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. His purpose was to restore, his purpose was reconciliation, but not reconciliation in general, but to reconcile all things to himself, which I think means to align all things to his perfect will by making peace through his blood, his blood shed on the cross. God didn't do it simply to take my broken soul and put it back together, although I'm glad he did, but to take the entire broken cosmos and to restore it through Christ's resurrection through his supremacy his lordship the universe is falling apart i am falling apart and the plan of god is to make peace or pax the peace of christ not pax romana but pax christi and he's done it by his blood shed on the cross the roman empire were great at capturing and shaping and monopolizing the imagination of her subjects Through images. That's what you have to do when you want people to vote for you, buy your product, die for your cause, or fight for your armies. The Roman Empire knew how to do it. Par excellence. And the images of Caesar everywhere captured imaginations. This is the son of God. And the structures, the cities, the institutions, the victories. And through those things, the peace, or Pax Romana, spread throughout the empire. But do you know how they did it? You know how they achieved that peace? Hear this. They achieved it through crucifixion. That's how they did it. Crucifixion. They crucified those who were a threat to the empire. Bloodshed brought the Pax Romana via the fear of crucifixion. After all, there were two people that died on the day with Jesus, and thousands more. It was, after all, called the place of the skull. But through this, the Romans brought peace and reconciliation to the known world. And so you can see how the Apostle Paul's story and gospel then is subversive to the Roman Empire, for God has brought the reconciliation of all things and peace by a crucifixion as well. But not thousands of them, threats to the empire, but rather through the crucifixion of one man, Jesus Christ. And not yours. Peace, then, not by fear and the taking of a life, but by love and by the giving of his own. The cross, then, is the nail in the coffin of the Roman Empire. As Bishop Tom Wright says, here, then, is the great irony that stands at the heart of the book of Colossians. This is the reason why the church has to learn gratitude. The cross was not the defeat of Christ at the hands of the powers. That's what it looked like with the Romans. Rather, it was the defeat of the powers at the hands, yes, the bleeding hands of Christ. Him, the cosmos the powers, then finally, finally, you. Paul then locates how the peace of the cross comes to you. Suddenly in all this high talk, you are located. Your story is found. You know when you see maps of the galaxy and you're like, "Where's the sun? Where is it? Where, where am I?" There's like thousands of these on Google images. You're here, right, this grand story. this is where you are. Paul in Colossians puts the arrow down in verse 21. He says, "Once you were alienated from God, you were, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. true, for me." But now. I love when paul does that but now he does it in ephesians 3 but now he has reconciled you by christ's physical body through death his death to present you holy in his sight sinner though you are and without blemish and free from accusation this is why christians get up in the morning with confidence i was broken He put me back together again. I was estranged. He brought me home. I was alienated, but I'm now reconciled by Christ's atoning death, ahead of the renewal of all things. I am the prodigal, no longer in the pigsty of self, but home, holding his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And it turns out in this text, I need to do only one thing, just one thing. Verse 23, I've got to continue in my faith, established and firm, and it's the same thing, do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Two sides of the one coin. Continue in the faith, don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. I just need to stay put. Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved not intimidated by 77,000 tons of social pressure. Jesus is the ocean of supremacy that outlasts them all. Verse 23, this is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, have become a servant. I've made it known in almost every place. So don't be fooled by size. There's a larger reality, Christ and an ocean of grace. In a very real way, the story that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar Lord is one of the reasons why, within a couple of hundred years, the evils of the Roman Empire ran aground. They were beached. if a small group of believers in Turkey could become that because they submitted to the supremacy of Christ, imagine what Jesus could do with us. Christianity, if false, is of no importance. Maybe a few things for Western society. But if it's a lie, it's a lie. No importance. If true of infinite importance, you have to sit up and listen. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Let me pray. Father, in a moment, we're gonna sing, um, hark the herald angels sing, probably in 10 minutes, (laughs) five minutes. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, Peace on earth. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. We're astounded by that truth. But we live in the real world and um, we know that there are, we experience sorrows, tears. We lack the strength to cast out the fears. We know through mental health or or other matters. We know what it means to have the darkest night or a broken soul. And yet we say that Jesus is my joy in sorrows, it is my strength to cast out fears, my hope in darkest night, my broken soul's delight. And so we say, along with the Apostle Paul in Colossians, there is no other name in heaven that can be found through whom we are redeemed, reconciled, through whom your grace abounds. No other name can save, but Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of God's people said, Amen.